Chesapeake Offshore Sailing Services, helping sailors win the hardest race, the race to the starting line. Hi again, this is Brian Barone, Chesapeake Offshore Sailing Services, bringing you the Offshore Sailing Today podcast. This is podcast number three, the ongoing series. So uh, today we're going to look at the Golden Globe race, see how the entrants are doing. Right now, the bulk of the fleet has gotten about level with uh, Senegal uh, or the Ivory Coast, uh, sort of central western Africa. The leaders have broken free of the doldrums and are a little bit further south. So currently our leaders are Philippe Pesch, the Frenchman, in first. He is just about equidistance between Africa and South America. Jean-Luc Van Dehid, another Frenchman, is in second, close behind him. Uh, they're both on a pretty good track. From the Netherlands, we have Mark Slats, who is doing well, but as I said, is a little bit further to the west. We've got a mass of boats bunched up who've just tacked over. Susie Goodall, who's uh, currently in sixth place from the UK. Susie is a favorite for us. Taipo Lindahim, Ukuranma, all behind. So everybody seems to be moving along fairly nicely. No one is going amazingly fast. We've got 2.6 knots for our wig. We've got 6.2 knots for Typo. He's doing pretty well. Susie Goodall limping along at 4.1. Our leaders um, keeping the boat moving at 5.5. And Philippe, 6.3. So uh, a little bit of a d speed gap there between the leader. Mark Slats doing pretty well in the west, 5.8 knots. So again, these boats are up and moving. They're doing well. They are uh, on the wind for the most part and driving south. Alabash Tomi is in 10th place. He's from India. This is a really diverse group of folks. Look the page, 4.5 knots, another Frenchman. Istvan Kopar is in 13th place right now. There's a bit of a controversy surrounding Istvan. Istvan was having some trouble early on with his wind vane. He was never really able to get it functioning properly for, I think, the first 12 days of the race, something like that. If you're not familiar with wind vane self-steering, basically back in the 1960s, the only type of uh, self-steering mechanism that was available to the racers uh, was known as a wind vane self-steering. In fact, the, the designs were pretty rudimentary at that point. Uh, Blondie Hassler uh, was one of the, the race entrants. He actually invented his own type of self-steering. And so over the years, wind vane self-steering uh, was the primary mode of steering these boats in these long-distance ocean races. As technology progressed and electronic self-steering got better and better, they took the place of the wind vanes. For good or for bad, a lot less drag with an electronic autopilot. So how these things work is basically there is a device hung off the back of the boat, uh, basically a lot of st stainless steel or aluminum tubing and a large blade that sticks up in the air that's on a pendulum. As the wind gets to an angle to that pendulum, it kind of pushes it over. And so the mechanism is attached to the steering by a series of lines, or in some cases they're directly linked to the steering quadrant. And this contraption, which is mechanical in nature, will keep the boat moving to a constant heading to the wind. In my trip from New York to New Zealand, which was halfway around the world, not entirely around the world, we used the wind vane self-steering from basically the Panama Canal to New Zealand. And I used an old style of Aries wind vane self-steering, a very robust aluminum rig that if all the little working parts are not working perfectly together, it doesn't 
work very well. And this is the, the same for all of them. Uh, you have to make sure all the bearings are loose. You have to kind of spritz the thing with oil every few days. We, you know, hit it with a little WD-40 as, as time went on. And when they're working, they are a wonder to behold. I mean, as the wind gets stronger, the wind vane gets stronger. Conditions that you never would want to steer, hand steer in, you know, you just want to get down below. The wind vane is up there just working it hard. You know, things that would be completely exhausting to do by hand, the wind vane does without a problem whatsoever. Uh, and also, even if you have a, an electronic self-steering device, sometimes those things in heavy weather can get overloaded, uh, and they're finicky. So we didn't, we did not just have the wind vane. We had two electronic autopilots, and the electronic autopilots, both of them died during during my trip across the Pacific Ocean. So we used the wind vane for the most part, and they're great devices. But if they're not set up initially correctly, they will not steer you at all. And it seems like something in his rig was not set up correctly and was causing it to not be functional. Because once it is set up correctly, it's very, very simple. It's very, very robust. But he had something set up wrong. And I can't help but think that that's probably an installation error or an operator error. But I, I, I would lean towards installation error because they're very simple to operate once you get them going. And so he'd been steering by hand for 12 days, which is pretty rough. So he stopped. He dropped anchor. He had used his satellite phone to radio in, signal his intention to move to the Chichester class. The Chichester class allows one stop on the circumnavigation. It takes you out of contention for the overall Golden Globe winner. So he basically called in, asked for his race organizer to get some parts for him to try and, or a new wind vane to try and fix the wind vane. He learned it would take quite a while to get the wind vane parts there and in that time he actually found a bag of spares and was able to repair the wind vane himself. At that point when he dropped anchor he did not enter any harbor, he did not touch land, but he did stop. He stopped for I think it was 14 hours, something like that. So during that time I'm sure he got asleep, he got some rest, he brought himself back together and at that point he called in and asked if he could re-enter the Golden Globe because he had not received any material help I don't believe he was visited by anyone, although he may have been. I have yet to confirm that. And so asked for consideration to re-enter the Golden Globe race. He cited confusion and the stresses on him at the time. By the accounts that we're hearing from the Golden Globe organizers, he was pretty confused when he called in. As I kind of said earlier, after that much hand steering and that much lack of sleep, you're kind of not in your right mind. So what the Golden Globe organizers did was they docked him time for the anchoring and docked him time for use of the sat foam, which is prohibited expressly in the rules. The Golden Globe organizers had given themselves room to make different dispensations of the rules if they so chose. So giving the dispensation, allowing him back in, is completely within the, the rules that they wrote for themselves. However, there is a little bit of controversy because folks are basically saying, you know, these rules were pretty well established. It's one of the cornerstones of, of the whole race was that they would do it the way they'd done it back in, the, back in the old days. And so there are some people who are noticeably a little bit peeved at this decision. I understand both sides of this. When looking at things like world record holders for circumnavigations nonstop, unassisted, they do actually allow anchoring, like most sailing races. You know, if you're on a foul tide, you're allowed to put the anchor down. That doesn't disqualify you from the race. So he did not enter port. He did not get off the boat. He didn't receive parts. He did everything with what he had on the boat. 
So from that perspective, I can see allowing him back in, saying, right, he just he just stopped and regrouped. You know, in a race, it's not ideal to stop and put an anchor down, but because it slows you down, and you don't win the race. But it's not prohibited. What is prohibited is I call a stopover. He used the sat phone. He did stop. He did have that opportunity to rest and and recalibrate, I guess, re-energize himself. So at this point in time, I am not certain that it was a good call. At first I thought, ah, fair enough. The guy didn't get any help from outside, but they made the sat phone call part of the requirement. So yeah, it's it's a bit of a, a weird one. But right now he is, uh, I believe, in about 15th place for the Golden Globe. He is not far from, if you look on the tracker, he's actually a little orange boat. Esteban is actually very close to the original track of Sir Robin Knox Johnson, who was, of course, the winner of the original Golden Globe in 1968. So even with the stopover, it would seem that these boats, which are probably likely a little bit better prepared than the originals were, though the designs are similar in nature. Um, so yeah, uh, Esteban will have been tracking Sir Robin Knox Johnson, who uh, I believe took about 312 days to, to circle the globe in that race. Antoine Cozat is behind him. He is in the Chichester class. He, he did stop. and So let's see, let's see if they've actually updated Esteban to... Nope, they've got him 13th. Sorry, 13th in Golden Globe. Again, hopefully that doesn't impact him too much. I mean, he's pretty far back in the pack. Mark Sinclair is in 12th on his Lilo 34. The Rustlers are doing well. The Rustlers are up in the front. Uh, Isvan is in a, a trade win 35. So that's the Golden Globe. The Golden Globe is ongoing. Believe it or not, we actually were going to get an interview with Isvan. I had spoken with some of the people uh, in his camp, and they were happy to have him give an interview. But luckily for him, he could press on with his repaired gear. So that's fortunate. But unfortunately for us, we did not get an interview with him. I'd watch out for Gregor McGuckin. He's um, he's coming up fast. Mark Slats may come into trouble. He's a little bit too far west. He took a gamble there. Now, he's still in third, but we'll see if the wind dies out on him. Susie Goodall looks like she was in fourth place. Looks like she was the uh, first attack over there. But again, at a 4.1 knot clip, that uh, eastern portion of the course is not looking fantastic. So on to the Chicago Mackinac race. So the Chicago Mackinac race was completed a little over a week ago. Several friends that were in the race this year. And by all accounts, it was a, a re very rough year. Uh, if you may have heard, so the Chicago Mack race, basically, tragically, someone was lost. This is on a TP-52. So one of the crew members of a TP-52 was lost overboard. Tragedy, absolutely. This happened only within the first 40 minutes of the race, several miles offshore, not, not that far offshore. But by all accounts, the conditions were horrendous. And one of the boats that I spoke with, they had snapped most of their halyards as the boat was going in and out of the troughs of, um, of different waves. The forces on the, of the sails filling and unfilling at the top and bottom of each wave they were just popping halyards left and right, and they had to retire. Um, another boat uh, a friend of mine was on, they actually won their class. Uh, she was the navigator, did a beautiful job. But again, you know, a rough year, and getting through that race, I think, is going to be, it's going to be one of the ones they talk about for a few years at least. Kind of like the uh, Annapolis to Bermuda race was this year. It's, it's one that 
kind of lets people remember that these are not ever small races. You know, you might get a good year, you might have an easy race, but, you know, there's always that opportunity to, for everyone in the fleet to get their butt kicked. So, yeah, ma- major tragedy. Now, one of the uh, one of the things about this particular incident, and we don't have a lot of information at this point. I don't believe the body has ever been recovered as of yet. Certainly wasn't the last time I checked. Um, but they said he went overboard while making a routine sail adjustment. Now, I'm not sure what kind of routine sail adjustment that would be. TP-52, I've sailed on TP-52s. Um, so, uh, yeah, I, I don't know. Maybe... To me, I, I just don't, I don't know, no one really has said what, what that routine adjustment is, but clearly he was upright, not in a crouched position, and got hit by a wave, flung over, something to that effect. His PFD did not inflate. That is one of the real tragedies here, is that, you know, uh, we particularly deal with offshore safety gear and prepping boats for offshore so that they can be safe, and one of the things that we always focus on is people having the correct PFD, the, the right kind, knowing when to, where to clip on, how to attach their jack lines and the tether that's associated with that. In this instance, it would appear that he was not clipped in. He had his PFD on, and when he hit the water, it didn't inflate. To me, that says a couple things. Either one, he had opted for a manual uh, PFD, which uh, I have heard of some people doing. Uh, Bowman particularly, they feel like the the uh, auto-inflate is uh, too likely to inflate on them when they're up in the bow doing all that wet work. Or that the um, the gear was not installed properly, and that is a possibility as well. I don't know if he was hit in the head or if he was unconscious or if he was trying to swim. One other thing is that if you're in the water and your PFD does not inflate, you can rip that thing open and inflate it by mouth. I think that's something that actually we don't talk enough about if that little pill doesn't dissolve and trigger your your auto inflator you are absolutely able to rip that jacket open and start huffing and puffing on the thing and blow it up so i think that's something we're going to focus a little bit more on in our safety seminars that we do and just try to make sure that everybody understands that a manual inflate pfd is is to my mind there's no safety there you know if you go overboard you're, you're going to be dazed uh, you're not going to have a lot of time to react and he went under they said they, they watched him go under and that is an absolute horrible tragedy uh we'll leave it on that note this is brian barone for chesapeake offshore sailing services we'll have more on our podcast next week hopefully we'll have some interviews and we may be talking to ajaquan yachts who are getting ready to flip their hull for their new catamaran they've been building down in virginia That's all. Thanks a lot, and stay safe sailing out there.